Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Monday, September 13th, 2021. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, I think that we are going to probably, just guessing here, um, we didn't we didn't uh, plan it out beforehand or anything, but I'm guessing we're going to have a conversation. We're going to consult the luminaries in their fields of their time and try to figure out what is going on in this world. We are going to try to evaluate information fairly, no matter where it comes from, making sure that our discussions are kept in good faith. And along the way, we are going to do our level best to keep ourselves and our wonderful listeners adequately informed. Yeah, we recognize that we don't know everything. We are not perfect. We are not the only viewpoints that matters. Your viewpoint matters. Um, And we try to respect that. We are not upon the ivory tower looking down at the commoners of ideas. We are all down here as the commoners of ideas. We're in the big mosh pit with everyone else. The big idea mosh pit. It's 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 uh, it's a thing. So, Evan, what what, what's going on? What what are we talking about? Yeah, this week we are going to try to follow up on a couple of topics that have had pretty significant developments since last they were discussed on Adequately Informed. And I want to start with a big development in the case of the Free Britney movement. There has been earth-shaking news in this world, and uh, I think it's it's time to reopen this case. So, what this means is that uh, Jamie Spears, Britney Spears' father, has filed to end Britney's conservatorship. Essentially, he has stated that, oh, now everything's fine, and I think my daughter should get the chance to run her own life, and so... Now it appears as though the biggest hurdle on the road to the termination of the conservatorship has been cleared. Of course, this doesn't mean that Britney is free today or even tomorrow. There will be a hearing where essentially the next day her. Yeah. (laughs) On. uh, Yeah. The the, the day after that, she's good to go. Um, uh, There's going to be a hearing. Brittany and her legal team are going to have to prove that the conservatorship is no longer necessary. And then that's going to happen at the end of the month. And then uh, at at that point, if the judge decides that all is peachy and good, um, she should be able to regain control of her finances, medical decisions, and general life stuffs. So what I want to think about here, you know, obviously this is good news. We're not, you know, it's not a slam dunk yet, but this is a huge step forward in the case. So what I want to think about is after this 13-year conservatorship, we get sort of this moment where a lot of people are clamoring to free Britney and terminate the conservatorship. Even your own humble podcasters got on board and attempted to throw our our modest voices yeah, behind po- Britney. Podcasters Local 208 got behind it. <laughs> we should. We should start a union. Um, <laughs> and so... Can we get, like, some... Like, um... I, on Labor Day, like the Carpenters Union is like Carpenters and Fitters. Like, can we get someone that's like oddly adjacent to us? 
in so who would that us. be i don't know I, uh, like podcasters and morning radio dj union like 205 you know something yeah, like they that would probably you know? the morning radio djs would probably outrank us but we could do it yeah let's but make sure there's second <laughs> banana in our in our uh, in the union yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but anyway afl cio yeah um so what what I kind of want to explore here is that it, it seems to me, and maybe Joe will disagree, maybe you'll disagree. You can always email podcast at adequatelyinformed.com. But it, it seems like the real break in this case was the public pressure and scrutiny that Jamie Spears came under. And that is what caused him to eventually decide that the money that he was generating from the conservatorship didn't outweigh the losses that he was taking in terms of negative PR. So I, I want to have a discussion about times when social media causes actually do achieve their intended consequence. Joe, what, what do you think about all this? You know, it, after like the years of the Trump administration where so much vile shit happened and like nobody owned up to it, it's... It, it's like we're in a period now where like if somebody does something bad and then there's a big uproar over it and they change course because of it, it's like, oh, man, pretty great of you, man. I'm happy. You did the right thing. I like you now. You're good. <laughs> it's just like a it, like, I don't know. It's just a weird perspective thing versus you know what we saw for so long to see someone actually respond to criticism or you know indictment and just like actually change course it's like just refreshing <laughs> so a couple of of notes on that number one is that um, of course, Jamie Spears claims that this is not a change in course, that he has always done what's best for Britney, and now magically this is what's best for her. Um, right. So, you know, cool. Um, but then the other thing is that I feel like uh, I'm, I'm glad you're taking that sort of conciliatory tact, but I feel like there are a lot of people who are still highly critical of Jamie Spears and are saying that this is happening now for him to evade accountability. You know, he is filing so that he is never going to have to defend his actions were Britney to file to end her own conservatorship. And that this is actually just sort of like a duck and cover maneuver on his part. Mm -hmm. I know you got some thoughts on that type of response. Well, I am actually not super conciliatory on it. Like it's just like an initial response. Good, Let him have it. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's just like of, uh, you know, like in one hand, this feeling comes along. But then also it's like, dude, yeah, yeah, you basically kept your daughter, adult daughter under the conditions of like treating her like a six year old, you know, like what is going on? Like, that's just so fucked up, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's it, it. I mean. I, I want to draw an analogy and I don't know if this was going to fit in later, but like it just feels part of what the this outcome feels like is kind of like when Nixon resigned, like the best. Oh, case, yes, I remember it well. Yeah. But like the best <laughs> case, 
Like the biggest story in American history about impeachment until like Donald Trump gets worked into it or of impeachment working is actually when a president wasn't impeached and they resigned and never actually had to go through Mm -hmm. with the impeachment process. Whereas it feels like, you know, we were talking about the conservatorship and really no one has a way to end it from the inside or it's very tough at least. And it looked like the process for that was going to be started. And, you know, maybe there would have been some conclusion where, you know, there was, you know, it laid the foundations for how people under conservatorship could end up ending it for themselves. But we get to a scenario where Jamie Spears just, you know, is now electing to end it. So we end up not having that, you know, outcome that would been would have been guiding but mm-hmm. it it's just yeah interesting yeah and you you don't put any weight into the whole um britney is magically ready now theory oh i i don't know dudes work in <laughs> weird ways man like i'm sure it's been just been public pressure i mean i bet he probably got kicked out of his polite society and is wanting to change course like yeah Mm-hmm. People personally in his life were probably like, "Hey, what the fuck is going on? Like, you can't, <laughs> you can't keep doing this and hanging out with us. Like, we are not about that. Um, well, not, not at this country club. Yeah, I don't know, man. It's just, I, I don't know what's into it, but, but, but. I uh, mean, I, I do think it's logical to conclude that it's the public pressure. I just feel like maybe, maybe I'm more surprised by this than I should be. I, I, I'm, I'm just so disillusioned of the idea that persuasion matters. You know, I'm yeah. just so hesitant to accept the idea that maybe public pressure can exert itself to be a positive force for change in the world, mm-hmm. um, because. You know, so many characters are spent on Twitter every day to Mm -hmm. absolutely no consequence. Maybe it's just about finding the pressure point, you know, finding a place where you actually and and this is something that kind of gets talked about a lot. It's kind of like low knowledge situations are where where persuasion can work a lot. So not a lot of people knew the extent of the conservatorship laws and specifically how they were impacting Britney Spears life. So we kind of had this big groundswell of real outrage kind of very quickly as people were given some of this information. And then and like despite you said, our polar, yeah, yeah, like despite our polarization, you know, nobody quite had the signals to know how to think about it. So, you know, more people were able to go along with it. Well, yeah, because who, you know, I'm sure conservatives don't care too much about Britney Spears, but who is going to stand up and say, yes, I really believe that I want to make it a point to support this conservatorship of one private citizen in California, you know, like, right. Yeah, I think Tucker Carlson has a hard time selling that one. Oh, he should have done a whole month on it. (laughs) Britney month. Yeah. Yeah. Followed up with Infrastructure Month, you know. Yeah, exactly. 
But no, yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of information out beforehand. And, and hell, I, I really hadn't known. You know, I had seen... Me the, neither, yeah. I, you know, before this all kind of came to a head uh, within the last couple of months, you know, I had every once in a while seen, you know, like a, I don't know, just a stray hashtag of Free Britney, but I never looked into it. I, I, I always thought it was like a conspiracy theory. Like, yeah, or, or like a, a meme based on that, like Chris Crocker leave Britney alone video, which it yeah. turns out he was right. Like, that's the cr- kind of crazy thing is like he was right. People were being unfair to her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that bore fruit like all these years later. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a a movement that sort of found the correct pressure point, I would say. And clearly jamie spears her father because also her father is jamie her sister is also jamie but that's jamie lynn spears who you may yeah. remember from vague pop culture 15 20 Man, years what, ago what a power move naming your 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 uh, child of the opposite sex your name <laughs> i mean if you if you're jamie i guess you can like yeah. it works yeah. it's not it's not like too socially taboo i don't know you don't, you don't want move. little you don't want little uh, Josephine someday. Yeah, but that would be a different name. It's not it, <laughs> didn't name my kiddo Joseph <laughs> <laughs> as a girl. Yeah, yeah. Um, but fair point. Fair point. Yeah, it's um, um, yeah. Go on your point. You have more points. Oh yeah, just sort of my point that um, yeah, either Jamie Spears the elder is just aware of his need for media to continue to make money and his fear of having that media turn completely against him irrevocably that motivates this decision. Or like you said, there's some personal dynamic to it where people in his life have frozen him out because of this and the negative publicity or even you know they might not have any sort of moral opposition to the conservatorship but having such negative buzz around you i guess could be a liability in and of itself regardless of the underlying issue you know what i mean mm-hmm. well and it, it's also just like it, it's a hard thing to double down on too like um <laughs> My adult daughter is completely incapable of running her life, and I will fight this until the end. Yeah. Um, she just... has had multiple high-grossing tours, and she was completely incompetent the whole time. Yeah, it's just yeah. the... Well, yeah. Yeah. And, like, you know, and, and again, the whole situation is just bonkers. Like... I think part of the reason why I thought the Free Britney stuff was like a conspiracy theory, because I thought that the kind of stuff that they were talking about was so ludicrous. How could this just ever be let to stand? Yeah. How is this a law? (laughs) Yeah. How is this legally like I had never heard of really conservatorship before. Like, yeah, yeah. It's mostly a California thing, you know? Yeah. And even then, uh, like, I mean, like we said on the last time we talked about it, it was mostly about like old people for the end of their life. Yeah. Yeah. Not young fucks, you know, like (laughs) 
it's just it's just it was just so bonkers it still is so bonkers but it's good that um at least it's been coming to an end yeah so so what do you think do you think that what we talk about on this show matters to the broader world do you think that not just us specifically but our our sort of type of media ecosystem and social media ecosystem do you think that that matters in some grander sense like i i i gotta the the case is pretty simple (laughs) at this juncture so i gotta i gotta extend philosophically what do you think we're doing here um Ooh. well like you say in the beginning we're having a conversation um Mm -hmm. (laughs) i mean um what was it i i've heard journalists before or criticism of journalists before be like you you know doing journalism and like acting like it has no effect on the world like you hope it has some fucking effect on the world (laughs) and i hope that I mean, I think, I mean, again, persuasion is such like a big topic and, you know, it just really gets to the roots of things. But if, you know, if there's one thing I hope with this is that not necessarily I'm changing minds, but at least bringing new information that people choose to consider, you know, at least something like that. But I don't know. Can, you know can you persuade people i mean i'm sure you can but it's tough and they have to be open to it generally Mm -hmm. um so um yeah i i and and who knows if jamie was really convinced but you know i mean i'm sure he knew the whole time just Mm -hmm. you know was just getting away with it yeah yeah and then the maybe that's what we can do is is shine a spotlight on things that are so obviously bad, right? Yeah. Um, that just cannot be tolerated, but otherwise wouldn't attract a lot of attention. Yeah. Well, is yeah, that's like one of the main things that like journalism or reporting does. Or I mean, we we are not journalists. We are opinionists. Oh hell, we are. Yeah, no, do not yeah. consider this journalism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But but the you know I'm using it as an example because it tracks most closely to journalism. Mm-hmm. But it's like um, the you know best case scenario is that you bring to light something that happens that people really care about, and you know is you know does a ooh have airplanes flying overhead. Um, yeah, it's you not just ominous wanna, at all. Yeah, no, no, it's the Stearman <laughs> flying. It's great. Um, but you want to bring things to the forefront and people's attention, I guess, you know, that's all everything is doing these days, just grabbing people's attention. And it's so scary. Monetizing attention. Yeah. (laughs) The attention economy. That's why, that's why it's called that. So let me have a derivative question on this whole question of influence and persuasion. Whose Mm -hmm. side are you taking Howard Stern or Joe Rogan? Um, I was a Joe Rogan fan. Are are they beefing? I I'm a little a bit. Like it's it's just kind of um. So so a lot of talk show hosts and podcast guys have been like kind of on this anti-vax thing. You know, Joe Rogan has been 
pitching his conspiracy theories and whatnot. And then the mm. other day, Howard Stern was just like, I- I'm sick of it. If you're if you're not taking the vaccine, you are an idiot. And I don't have a problem telling that to you. Um, and then he specifically called out people in his field saying, like, come on, guys, we we have this platform and you're not honestly going to be this stupid and convince other people to follow you. Right. So it's mm-hmm. it, it's it's not like name dropping like, you know, Suge Knight's not involved yet. But um, I could see I could see a little beef developing and I'm I'm going to yeah. take Howard Stern. He hosted AGT. That's it's pretty good. I mean, in this bit, I'm more on Howard Stern's side. Damn straight. Um, but I don't know. I again, I haven't listened to Joe Rogan in a long time. Um, it's been a at least a year now since the last time. And I wasn't really even there were like Matthew Iglesias was on his podcast. And so I listened to that one, of course, but like, then I really stopped <laughs> because, well, but he also moved to Spotify and that's not where I listen to my podcast. I listen to my podcast on the Apple podcast app. So mm-hmm. if he's not showing up in my feed, I guess I'm not going off and trying to listen to him, but like, I don't know. I, he has good conversations and I like it, but uh, uh, you know, a stupid shit like this, you know, occasionally <laughs> happens. And then in this specific case continuously happens. So it's like, what the fuck, man? I don't know. But, but then again, he's also just some guy, but then, you know, once you get to a platform that big being just some guy is just not acceptable. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, or or you're more open to criticism than you would be if you had a smaller platform. So like us. Yeah, we're unaccountable because we're small. <laughs> uh, someone's going to call us out someday. Someday. Someday it will happen. We're, we're not we're not being ballsy enough. We're not taking enough risks. Well, I would takes risks. I would like to say that um, anyone who doesn't think we're taking enough risks, go to our Facebook page, go back through and find the comment <laughs> section on our episode that we did in the wake of George Floyd. I think I think we pissed some people off that day. I don't think you, we pissed anybody off. We just caught the eye of a troll. Yeah, we caught the bots. We had the yeah. right buzzwords to to get them over there. Yeah, yeah, they they. It didn't seem like anything actual people behind it. It was just a bunch of just a bunch of shit that I, I'm sure was posted on so many other things as well. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. Yeah. So to put a little bow on it, um, very glad that Britney Spears is progressing towards getting control of her life once more. And to get a little bit more narcissistic about her deeply personal struggle, I'm glad that it seems like uh, people like me, but bigger and better than me, might have actually had a role in this. And that maybe public pressure can be weaponized for good. Occasionally. It's fine. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Once in a million. Yeah. Sometimes we can get a celebrity out of a situation that should have never been. Yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think that's it. I think think we stopped the show. That's it. (laughs) That's been adequately informed, everybody. 
We'll see you next week for our new show. No, no, we're done, done. Yeah. Yeah, no, we're, we're starting. We have to do a new brand. We can oh, keep podcasting. Brand. We got to discontinue adequately informed, though. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're shutting it down. I'm getting the big lever that says on, and I'm turning it to off. Oh, man. Yeah. It's been a good run. 74 yeah. episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Six seasons in a movie. Uh, good stuff. Yeah. So, Joe, what else are we talking about today? Well, Evan, I wanted to uh, do a revisit of a, a topic we had talked about last year. Um, I guess it's just revisit day. We're, we're uh, revisiting topics that we've done before. Um, and the topic I want to revisit that we had talked about also in the flight, you know, in the wake of George Floyd was defund the police a catchy slogan that came out in the wake of George Floyd's death at the hands of police officer or at the knee of police officer Derek Chauvin of the Minneapolis Police Department and um, kind of what things look like in what we know about policing a year later and kind of at a cooler temperature than we were last year when things were running red hot back then. So to start off, I'm going to spring on Evan. Evan, what was defund the police as you understood it? As I understood it, defund the police was a slogan that represented a broader movement to radically change the way that the country thinks about policing through the restriction of funds to police departments operating under the theory that policing in America is fundamentally broken, fundamentally racist, and fundamentally harmful to black lives. So reform is no longer possible. The only solution is abolition. And it became huge in the discourse for a long period of time. And you saw some budgetary changes here and there, but ultimately, we, we never got anywhere close to moving towards a world where the police were, in any realistic sense, defunded. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a phrase, a moniker that, like, could, it was kind of designed to be whatever you wanted it to be. Like... There was the possible definition that Evan just laid out for some people. They thought it meant just like reform, but called it shifting budgetary priorities. Yeah, that's a good thing that I should mention, too, is that the other concept was like, what if we funneled the money that was going towards cops who are over policing areas, harassing people and redirected it into schools and job placement and economic development of urban areas. So essentially getting the municipal budgets to align with a more hopeful, pro-social, proactive version of the future. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, and there are definitely some parts of that that I, I and I, I'm going to lay it out that I am basically anti-defunding the police 
as a matter of opinion. But, you know, the, the case is going to be laid out because I remember, you know, a few weeks ago to a month ago when there was a voterama going on in the U.S. Senate, um, they were uh, Senator Tommy Tuberville, former former uh, Alabama coach. I believe turned, so. Turned uh, senator added on a uh, kind of nonsense amendment that was like uh, that no uh, money in this bill shall be used to go and defund the police, which feels like kind of an odd, you know, using money to defund the police. But who knows? Yeah. Defunding Um, is the restriction of money. Yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) But anyway, it was a silly, silly amendment. And but but then Cory Booker, um, senator from New Jersey got up and said, I bless Tommy Tuberville to so that we can lay to rest once and for all that um, Democrats, which I believe all of us will vote for this amendment, will put to rest that we are actively trying to defund the police. And uh, they took the vote and all Democrats voted for the amendment. And Uh, The video of this kind of made its rounds on Twitter, and I saw people decrying that, oh, these people just don't care. They they they're in a line with the racists and the, you know, the, you know, killing of black men and all this stuff. And I want to lay out the case that we should probably have more police funding that it would actually end up making things better, but there definitely have to be reforms. So why are people, Evan, I'm, I'm gonna pivot to you again to get you, so I'm not just monologuing. <laughs> what are the main things that people have issues with the police about? Yeah, so the, the big issues as I see them are number one, the violence inflicted on minority communities, either through direct police brutality or through hyper-incarceration. And then also the... How do I want to phrase this? The general sort of blight and neglect that kind of then follows from that. Um, So the idea being that you know cops kind of can either over police an area and that causes a lot of problems or they under police an area and then crime is allowed to fester but there's Mm -hmm. there's some disconnect in here that isn't servicing minority communities and communities who are actually impacted by the effects of crime yeah so yeah they're they're modern policing in the united states generally is not living up to the platonic ideal of what policing can be, which is upholding the laws as we have them and ensuring the safety of the citizenry. But we know that that isn't always the case and they don't always take actions that seem to be do that seem to do that and just seem more punitive. Like, I, you know, on my little list here, I have the police bad side. And I mean, there's been lots of things that people have found pretty invasive about uh, police, modern policing. There was the whole era of stop and frisk where, you know, uh, cops in New York City were given the permission to 
shake down anyone that they thought was suspect. That reduces a, you know, a, a city's and people's belief in the cops if they're just going around accusing people or, you know, shaking them down for all their stuff. Um, you know, just this kind of badgering that people or cops will do where, you know, they pull you over for a minor, you know, like maybe you have a tail light out and they go off and search more, you know, or, you know, been the cases where they see that you're black and then all of a sudden treat you with more suspect and, you know, higher scrutiny. And, and, you know, there was recently a study that came out that, that, uh, uh, cops were a lot sterner with black um, people that they had pulled over versus white people, which, you know, I, I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of black people out there who are like, yeah, of course. But, you know, sometimes getting a study of things helps convince people. Um, and then there's also like some parts of like civil asset forfeiture with, or forfeiture, which is just like this crazy law that like allows police departments to seize money and other assets if they believe that it's going to be used in a drug crime any like, crime not yeah, just, just a drug. Like, i i did actually my my persuasive speech my sophomore year of college was about civil asset forfeiture so if we want to go here bro i can go here yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean that's just a bonkers thing that not every police department actively engages in, but it's still a tool in their toolbox that they can use. And that's just so damaging. And there's really no legal route to reclaiming your shit. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, then there's the racial discrimination, like we've been saying. I mean, I don't know if George Floyd would have been uh, killed at the hands of the police if he was a white dude um you know especially for like you know the you know the possible crime of possibly counterfeiting a 20 dollar bill but and then then all of this is bad stuff but then also we are so fed up with it we are wanting to take away their funding is because kind of on top of it all is that all of this can happen and it turns out it's extremely hard to fire the bad cops mm -hmm. like this i i often feel like this is like the whole thing is that there's qualified you know there's this thing called qualified immunity that exempts um some civil servants as um, from being personally charged for the activities that they conduct as a civil servant. But it the courts and the law have like wrapped around police officers to give them pretty big immunities from facing any sort of consequences before the law. And then also police, police unions, unions. Yep. have negotiated their contracts with these municipalities to make it so that it's pretty damn hard to be fired as a police officer for misconduct. And that, you know, all the stuff that makes people mad about police officers, the badgering, the stop and frisk, the civil asset forture, killing unarmed civilians, um, 
that is all stuff that people see as very bad in the police. And I personally do too. Get no, like no bones about it. I am definitely all against all of that stuff. And I think it needs to be taken very seriously. But then we are not able to fire the police officers who abuse their power. Like that's, it's just so crazy. Like, I feel like there was some sort of catharsis when Derek Chauvin got convicted mm-hmm. that like, thank God in the highest profile case that has happened and one of the most blatant that has ever happened, or at least blatant in the modern sense that we've seen on video and widely publicized mm-hmm. that the police officer ended up getting convicted. Like, you know, it's good that he got convicted But I want to transition because all these things that people have an issue with is it's not the matter of funding or the level of funding. I mean, there is some stuff where um, one of the critiques of modern police is that they have become too militarized as well. So they will have like SWAT gear and like armored personnel carriers and all this weird stuff. But that is also not necessarily that they had tons of funds laying around. It's that the U.S. military, like part of the war on terror, just started making all of that equipment available to municipal police departments. And, you know, that's just had bad consequences. And that's a policy that needs to be ended like I think uh, the military has um, given rocket launchers to police departments and like, what the fuck is a police department going to do with a rocket launcher? No, those are actually really bad. Um, Sort of the entire police militarization thing. There was a study that concluded that police departments that obtain sort of that type of grade of equipment actually see increases in violent crime and the the theoretical connection is that seeing those types of things serve as an aggressive an aggression cue to members of the community kind of like a well they're they're bracing for war so we gotta brace for war type of thing um in a way that wasn't seen a, a rise in violence that wasn't seen in comparable communities that did not militarize so yeah that's right yeah not really not really part of the broader point but it's definitely a bad thing (laughs) like if you think you're going to be brushing up against the law at some point you're going to take more precautions because you're not going to want to be out there just just powerless against you know like a tank or whatever um but yeah it is definitely bad and i'm not saying that people should be i don't know militarizing against the police but but anyway and all that stuff is really bad and it's not, but it's not really a function of funding and it's there i think part or an issue that we have run into in the greater policing conversation is that how bad crime is and crime is something that also very much hurts communities like in the policing conversation you know we've gone through a lot of talk about how you know the violence that police inflicts on the people it is how damaging it is any sort of violence inflicted against people can 
turn into trauma, which ends up hurting people for long, long periods of time that they may never, ever be able to resolve from. Um, You know, there's tons of work out there that shows that trauma is just so bad for a person and you want to try and reduce trauma across a society to make sure that people are better off. And part of the critique of police is that, you know, the violence that they use also causes trauma. But then also crimes cause trauma as well. And we've seen over the last about year and a half, there has been a increase in crime across the country that hasn't necessarily been fully explained yet. We don't know exactly all the causes of it. I mean, it's definitely correlated with the pandemic, but crime is bad. It hurts communities. Like, I, and I know that's just like such broad strokes, but like to go into it, it's like if there's violent crime in a community on the regular and the people who do it aren't stopped, you know, it's like the people who are, you know, directly in the interaction are traumatized. The people in the area are traumatized and have you know, this trauma that comes along with that. Um, And, you know, in areas that have more crime, there is less likely for people to come and invest and try and be part of that community. So high crime in an impoverished area or any area can end up leading to perpetuating poverty and all these other downturns because of the violence that happens there because nobody wants to come and invest. And then also the people are affected by the trauma. So there is a real um, reason to help reduce crime because it helps communities. And I will definitely say that some of the um, reforms that are proposed by, you know, abolish police are things that we should go still do. But I want to go into another example of where we felt um, public employees weren't quite doing what we wanted. Um, we made a change and how things go. Evan, Before you wh- do, I, <laughs> go want, ahead. I just want to offer kind of the you know, stay in good faith, the ideas as to why it's actually about funding. So number one is the idea that if you conclude that policing can't be fixed, if you believe that the reforms won't take hold, the best you can do is limit the amount of damage that can be done by something that is fundamentally broken. You do that by shrinking the budget and making it less effectual. And then number two, I think, is also the idea of the trade-off, right? So... If we have a finite municipal budget, we can direct funds towards things that have sort of longer term benefits like education, housing, healthcare, And those things are, in theory, not saying that this has been borne out by the data, but in theory are a better use of money than reactive policing. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. that's just all to say that, like... 
I definitely agree that you're what you're saying that there there are things that transcend a budget no matter how big or small it is but there there are at least a couple of cogent theories as to why yeah. reduction in budget will well, actually have an impact and i'll also before we go into the next thing respond to one bit of that is that like i definitely believe in investing more in like community services and the kind of long-term project of reducing crime by you know increasing availability of healthcare, making uh school you know and all this other stuff more accessible and more um you know just more available so that people are less prone to being the types to or being someone who ends up committing crime but do you know how much of u.s gdp is spent on policing i, I would assume not much one percent yeah of gdp is spent on policing in the United States, which is actually a little bit lower than most European countries. Um, most European countries spend anywhere between like 1.1 to 1.4 percent of their GDP on policing. But then, but then, my larger point is that the percentage of GDP we spend on something like healthcare is 18 percent. Um, which is just, just, just massive, just massively more. Um, so while I take the point that, you know, the funding taken from police could be used elsewhere, the fact is, is that the numbers that you would take out of a police budget are not going to manifestly make a big difference in those longer term projects. And those projects have to be like taken made wholesale as their own and not just taking out of police budgets. So there has been another time in the history of the United States where we decided that we were going to take on the, um, a, a, uh, a union of, uh, state employees that are ubiquitous and felt like their unions had too much power. Evan, who am I talking about? Well, based on those articles you sent me, I believe we're talking about <laughs> the teachers. <laughs> yeah. So there was a time that um, there was a program that came about in the early 2000s called, um, oh, God, why am I doing this? And I, No Child Left Behind. I almost forgot the name of it. Mm. And... There was this program called No Child Left Behind, and I'm sure most people our age or who are listening to this have heard of No Child Left Behind. The ba- you know, before that, the idea was that the United States was falling behind in schooling and that we needed to sh- or uh, weaken this, you know, the grasp that teachers had and make it so that we are going to essentially defund schools if they did not adequately perform to the levels that they needed to or had you know improving test scores and what we found from this experiment of no child left behind was that the idea of a department that is strung along 
and having a difficult time doing their job and fucking up had a hard time really turning things around if they had fewer resources. And I believe that this is a way to think about defund the police or the policing in general. And another example from teachers is that in the District of Columbia, who says that? In Washington, D.C., <laughs> um, in, in Washington, D.C., there was a reform that came around about a decade ago where, again, it was a similar situation to No Child Left Behind and kind of what people say about police departments is that the results were not happening. Students were not learning at a high enough or at the levels that they were hoping for. They were and they were losing teachers left and right and having real issues firing the bad teachers. So what did they do? They struck this plan that came out that the essentials of it was that they paid the teachers a slightly higher base rate, offered bonuses for um, doing well as a teacher, high test scores and like uh, student approval and made it easier for them to let go of about the bottom 5% of teachers who scored really poorly. And what has happened over time in DC is that it got rid of the bad teachers and it helped retain the good teachers across and and across different racial lines and all, all you know it has been good for the students of Washington DC to have this reform and it's been good for the teachers that they take home more pay so why would this also apply to policing it's policing to be charitable to the people who do it it's a tough job um you know sometimes on the left we like to villainize police officers mostly because of the ones who are bad um and there is you know seemingly no recourse for it but policing on its own as it's structured currently in the united states is a very tough gig like you may be in a department and you have to work 14 hours a day for like a week and then you may have a week off but working you know however many consecutive 14 hour days is a tough time and then from that there is a perception within the police community and the public as whole that policing is a very dangerous job now it's not the most dangerous job in America. Um, there's a lot of like lum lumberjacks and you know fishermen have more dangerous jobs, but it is at least perceived as a pretty dangerous job policing is. And because of this, it only you know, and you know, because of this, the job feels relatively low paid 
for most people who do it for the amount of risk that they accept. Like I wouldn't become a police officer for the amount that it pays and the amount of work that's entailed. I wouldn't do it. And it comes out that it, you know, attracts a certain amount of people, certain type of people. And then also these people who end up doing it are working a job where we know that people, once they work a certain amount of hours, their mental faculties are diminished. Their ability to think rationally is diminished and they just make bad decisions. And so we have this system where these uh, cops believe that they're in a dangerous job, that they're working long hours to do this job, and then they're put into these traumatic situations where, you know, it can be life or death. And then it's just now that's not to excuse poor behavior, but it's just a powder keg for poor behavior to happen or things that may not be as agreeable. So my general idea is that we probably need to fund the police more so that there can be more officers so that shifts can be shorter, so that peop- the police officers out there can have be able to make better decisions and better be able to handle situations and, you know, have less opportunity or, you know, not be as strung along to make bad decisions. And hopefully with a higher, you know, a higher pay to hire more officers you would get a better quality candidate. And then if you were also able to implement the firing of the bottom 5% or so of cops, then there would be able to be justice in the worst offenders that most people are upset about. So I've got a question about the mechanics of this, right? So Mm -hmm. we increased teacher pay in Washington, D.C. to keep better people around. But we didn't actually, like, shorten the school day or even, to my understanding, reduce class sizes by hiring more teachers. So how is this going to work in terms of police force where we're, we're paying more but also hiring more? I, I guess, like, what's, what's the vision here? I think it's to hire, you know, have a higher pay so that we, it can retain the people who are good higher pay so that it can attract more people because if you're reducing the hours that an individual police officer works then you're necessarily going to need more officers or people who do the job and that also doesn't and you know this i'm going into a tangent here but this also doesn't preclude having more um, non-police services i mean they can you know i think it's a good thing for these communities to have non-police responding services to go and see people who have like mental illness, but a increase in pay to better attract more and better candidates. And then also having more officers could lead to a scenario where the worst um, can be more abated or and, and just also the getting rid of the bad officers like so many times we hear this you know this stuff comes up 
and you know you know it's like from that john oliver video it's like people will say oh it's just a few bad apples and the whole phrase is the few bad apples spoils the bunch like we need to get rid of the bad apples that's like the biggest thing so the part of the higher pay is also to possibly win a concession in negotiations with the police because it turns out we're probably not going to be able to just mandate that the police, you know, just act better. Otherwise, someone would have. There has to be buy-in from the police as well. And the places where you see the best reform is where the top brass of the police um, buy into the critiques or try to do better. So it's it's all a negotiation because the reason why police have these they're called intangibles in like union negotiations it's something that isn't money but is valuable to the members so like schools have tenure and police officers have their protections for their jobs as well this is something that was won because uh, municipalities couldn't ha- give more money, but they needed to give something more to the police, you know, in negotiations. So they get these sort of protections where the hope is, is that if there is an offer of better pay, they would be more willing to shed those protections in negotiations. But this again, this all gets down to negotiations and I think the big problem with trying to reform the police is that there is stuff that you can do at the federal and state level, but most policies are done at the municipal level. And, you know, each state has so many different individual police departments that you really have to have all of them on board for a society that has good policing and not just one police department. So, and, and I mean, we even had that in the George Floyd case, like he was in Minneapolis and historically the Minneapolis police was much rougher on people and had worse community relations than the St. Paul police just across the river. So, but Yes, generally. And then also another part of it is that we just need to hire way more detectives. Um, Solving crime is good and we don't solve a ton of crimes in the United States. There are a lot of murders that get aren't solved. And part of it is due to resources. And there should be a way to get more detectives. Now, currently the way you become a detective is that you kind of have to be a beat officer or work as a police officer for a while and then you get promoted. But I definitely believe that we should be able to create some way to just go, you know, go get a, like a school degree and then go just become a detective. But that's another part of it too. But all of this is to say that I don't necessarily believe that if you're against defunding the police, that you're not for the welfare of the people, that there is a compelling argument for funding the police more to possibly get better policing outcomes.
So I'm definitely very much on board on this detective thing, right? Like, it's very unlikely that a detective is going to haul off and murder some suspect in a case. And then the trade-off is then, yes, that they can perform the valuable work of solving crimes. Some of that stuff that you sent me, man, those murder clearance rates, like in, in my own community, like 39%, 40%, that's that's disgusting, you know? That's just... That's that's not just that's not justice for anybody letting those people go away. Like knowing knowing that you can murder someone and have a 60 percent chance of getting away with it is fucked up. That's not a society that you like. Um, So I'm definitely more receptive to that idea. I think where we run into this is just uh, we have this very real tension in funding all of these kinds of municipal services where it feels like. Every single group is at the same trough elbowing each other for scraps. Yeah. And so it it makes a lot of sense to hire more detectives in the abstract. Where does the money come from? I'd love to see it come from just taxes. (laughs) That would be cool. Um, But it doesn't seem like that is ever really popular and sustainable. So that's that's I think the the bigger philosophical thing is that, you know, what do we do when it seems like you know, schools need more money, detectives need more money. Um we got to subsidize healthcare more. We got to subsidize housing. Where, you know, yeah. How do we how do we build this freaking society, man? How do we do it? What do we do? Well, I I it goes back to like something I I keep harping on is that it's like the United States chooses the most expensive option for everything. Like, you know, if you just look at income taxes, our taxes are kind of low compared to like European countries. But if you take in all other sorts of, you know, along with like the... um, you know, like corporate taxes and sales tax and all this other kind of stuff, it ends up being that we're not like we're a few percentage points away from a lot of European countries and not super far off. And I think this really just has to do with we've chosen like the most expensive options for most things or, you know, just not. And and sometimes it's because we believe that the expensive option is the one where the government does the spending. But like healthcare, like we've made a system where we're spending double the amount of money any other per capita that any other nation is spending because we've chosen a like we're going to like subsidize private health insurance, but then also not do that fully mm-hmm. and, you know, allow um, insurance companies to decide the amount of profit that they get. And then also like have a totally second track where, you know, the healthcare is provided by the United States government to some people. Mm-hmm. Like we just decided to make that way more expensive or, you know, schools and, or, you know, I think the whole safety net as a whole is extra expensive because if you um, 
you know, the general idea is that if over time you fund all these things, you know, you make sure that poor people are able to, um, you know, be in society, you cut down on traumas, you know, economic traumas and other types of traumas, and you solve these crimes that you can create a positive loop where over time you end up needing to spend less on these things because there is just less need. But because we don't fully address these problems, you know, we just end up still, we end up spending a lot of money paying for these, you know, and subsidizing the cost and not necessarily about, you know, providing the service at the lowest amount of money. And then since we're spending all this extra money on it, then when the problem isn't or the, you know, the knock on effects aren't solved, then we're just paying even more money for the other parts. So it's just America the expensive where it feels like we need to be spending more money on everything and we are already spending a ton of money on things. It's just not done efficiently. So it's a tough time. It's always a tough time in the United States. (laughs) But we're muddling through it. So um yeah that's what i wanted to say for the most part on funding the police um i believe it can do good i do believe that there is a lot wrong with the police but i do believe that it needs to be fought for in reform and i tend to believe that if we actually defunded the police that there would end up being more trauma within the community than there is at current policing levels. Yeah, so. I mean, it's a it's a shitty dance that we're in, a shitty situation where we even have to ask questions about, hey, are are these people are these are people actually doing more good than they're <laughs> yeah. than they're causing? Yeah, you know, like uh, you know, just just rough times. And I think like what what maybe I'm wanting to bring it back around to a little bit more is is the reforms because i i think that kind of part of this is predicated on the idea that the increased funding is going to make it easier to institute reforms and you know maybe using the dc teachers as a model i guess i'm a little bit more skeptical of that um because it seems like these are kind of reforms that should be no-brainers regardless of the level of funding right like some of this yeah exists independent from funding so why can't we get these reforms accomplished now because let's be honest independent of the funding it really seems like we have not had the policy changes that have followed this big social awakening moment and Mm -hmm. so what what are your thoughts on that why why is the reform piece of it so difficult right now you know, I, I'm going to may feel like a bit of a cop out, but, you know, on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, when we're recording this, I feel like a lot of this has to do with 9-11. <laughs> like, <laughs> like just the war on terror in general. Like, I think we're going to in another 20 to 30 years 
we're going to look back on the last 20 years that we did and see it through the lens of just dealing with the trauma of 9-11 and all the additional trauma spurred on by it. Um, So a lot of people got really... um, you know, uh, you know, worried about terror, but then like right next door to terror is crime. And there became, well, I say became, there has been a real belief in the United States that, um, you know, in order to be tough on crime, you have to be shitty to criminals or to people you suspect are criminals. And it just breeds a different attitude. And, you know, also after, you know, 9-11 coming together and supporting the troops and then supporting also police officers got rolled into that as well. So there just kind of became this thing where, you know, they wanted to really try and make things better, but nobody wanted to spend the money. So you get all these, you know, you and then once you breed a certain sort of culture, it's hard to really turn on something so, like that. So that's the piece of it that I think is really difficult. I think that some of these things that have now come into the world of policing, like the strong union protections for cops accused and found guilty of misconduct, I, I'm worried that they're too sticky, right? Mm-hmm. Like, even if they do get the funding, even if they do get all these other concessions, that those things aren't going to go away. And, you know, that that's concerning. It's concerning yeah. that you could be building a bigger institution that is impervious to reform efforts. Yeah. And it's concerning that, you know, I, I guess <laughs> what I'm scared of is that we raise the wages for police officers and they still just say, yeah, well, it's still the expectation that you're going to work 14 hour days, you know, because is that if, if, if reform does not take root, it it almost like we've talked about this whole time. Is it even a budgetary problem in either direction? Um, So, I mean, I think if there is an increase in pay there it, it just has to be that the the real operating reform is that you have to be able to f- more easily fire the worst offenders yeah like and it and it is you know there have been some studies where it has been shown that a lot of times it it kind of is bad apples like there there is one part of it where police officers will look after police officers and, you know, there's the thin blue line and the brotherhood of all this. But there are also studies that show that, you know, when good cops, at least I think I remember reading something about this. I believe this is what was stated was that when a relatively junior cop or some other cop became partners with a bad cop, their, their behavior diminished as well. So Mm -hmm. just like being able to get rid of the people who are not good for society by being police officers, that just, 
to me, that's the biggest thing that needs to happen. And it almost feels like everything else is just kind of downstream from that at this current moment. So, well, of course, there's the structural component to it, too. And and this is something we've talked about, so we don't need to rehash it all. But of course, um, I I think that who is considered a good apple or a bad apple may be more subjective than we'd like. Why is it that people like Derek Shelvin are allowed to become training officers, right? Like, actually, that's a good question. I don't know. Like, is it just a thing where it's on seniority? So if you can't get fired, you get put into a leadership position eventually? Right. Or or was that a choice that was made to say, you know what? Ah, he's fine. Um, I, I don't actually have the answer yeah. there. I mean, yeah. And that you you definitely see that there's some revelry. I mean, I again, this isn't every cop, but it seems rife within the cop communities like, um, real admiration for you know fictional figures like the Punisher, yeah. Which which the whole shtick of the Punisher is that he's a guy who takes justice into his own hands and just you know kills people that you know did wrong to him. You know, it's like it's and that's not what policing is. And you know, I I also wonder. You know, this is another reform that people will throw out from time to time. But it's like, do we need to make it so that, um, you know, police officers have to get an advanced degree before they can become police officers? You know, go and get your your uh, B.A. in, you know, coppery and (laughs) then you can go and be a police officer instead of just kind of generally being like. I know it's more involved than this, but, you know, in the way old days, you know, just like give them a gun and a badge and say, go, you know, (laughs) I mean, you know, that kind of law enforcement, you know, that's really just enforcing order, you know, if you don't know all the laws, you know, so it's, um, and I think people just want less of the ticky tacky stuff, you know, like, you know, being pulled over for a, a tail light that's out and being issued a citation, and then also like them, you know, using that as an excuse to search your car or some shit. Like, mm-hmm. just there just needs to people want to be less bothered by it, let fewer inflection points, and then also definitely the other stuff where you know we should have civilians who respond to issues some issues where police are not necessarily mattered, but police do matter in at least respects to violent crime. And we definitely need to solve more murders and, you know, and, you know, just the whole thing is so kind of just messed up right now that while I definitely have my opinions on this, I, you know, I can still be persuaded in other ways because we're just kind of murking through this, you know, um, wandering through the fog. I mean, hell, even the Minneapolis city council had voted to dissolve the police department in the wake of George Floyd. But they, you know, after they did that, they were like, oh, fuck, did we do that? Um, what if we just don't do anything? Will anybody notice? <laughs> and it's just kind of been indefinitely stalled. So, yeah, it's tough when so many people are hurting so much and that's kind of just this thing that we're still not 
through yet as a society is that so many people are just hurting so much and and we want easy answers or we want answers at all at a time when easy answers or answers at all may not exist yeah and we're we're really taking it on the chin in a lot of different areas (laughs) including this yep yep it's um yeah it's difficult and I mean, that's, I mean, part of the reason why I care about this is that, like, I want society to be better. Um, You know, I want there to be less trauma out there and, you know, and for people to be, you know, be able to live their lives better and be free from traumas. But it's it's all contentious and it's it's very debated on what to do about it. And who knows? I'm sure. I, I know some of our listeners are going to disagree with me. So, I mean, I'm fine with that, but I just wanted to at least say my piece. And that's, hey, I'm the guy on the podcast. I get to say my piece. Yeah. And if you want to say your piece, send it to us at podcast at adequatelyinformed.com or message our Facebook. We see those. Or Do- stop us on the street. Yeah, or mail us a letter. You have to figure out that part. But <laughs> actually, you know what? I don't know if I would want an unsolicited listener mail from someone who I have not explicitly given my address to. That's a little. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you might have opened up a real can here. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, this is going to be the episode that blows up and reaches, you know, infamy. Right? <laughs> you know, we're going to attract the weird trolls again. Yeah, probably, given the subject yeah. matter. Yeah. So, you got anything else, Evan, you want to say? No, nah, no. Nah. Well, actually, um, if, if we're just kind of wrapping up the episode, um, almost pulled the trigger and did a whole segment on it. But I do want to just mention um, my sadness at the passing of the actor Michael K. Williams, most famously known for his portrayal of Omar on The Wire. Very special actor very special role as omar and um hit me pretty hard and condolences go out to his loved ones definitely so at that um i would like to say thank you all for listening uh we hope that you enjoyed the show again if you have anything to say tell us or even topic suggestions but um and also thanks anthony hitch for the music i keep saying thanks anthony it keeps being true yeah thanks anthony (laughs) i i hope we can get a big old corporate like uh little spot where you know somehow there's like 200 of us standing in front of our corporate offices all waving and say thanks anthony (laughs) um but anyway my name's joe hicks and mine's evan kelly and we hope that you've been adequately informed.